Welcome to Stuff from the Science Lab from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey guys, this is Allison Lattermilk, the science editor at HowStuffWorks.com. And this is Robert Lamb, science writer at HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to our spooky yeah. podcast. Yes, we are continuing to uh, get a little spooky here with our topics. and uh, Today we're venturing into the graveyard. Yes, into the cemetery, which um, I think for most people, like especially since we already you know sort of brought up the spooky thing, you may be picturing like a you know a darkly lit cemetery. You know, it's uh, maybe there's a, you know some some movement over here in the corner, a cat or something moving. There's a, you know it's like there's a moon in the sky, and, and uh, there are all these like funny noises going on. Right? And then Michael Jackson pops out. And then Michael Jackson pops out. Because this is thriller. Yeah, I mean, that's totally what I picture. Vincent Price cackling in the background. Yeah, yeah, I think we can all instantly, you know, go there imagining the, the, the creepy haunted cemetery. Um, but in, in real life, do you ever, do you ever go to the cemetery? I do. Sometimes yeah. I run through them. I yeah. Like to, yeah, yeah. I think that if you paid me enough, I would sleep in one. Really? In a cemetery for the night. I could be persuaded to do that. Like, I'm not sure what the, the fee would be. Yeah. Would you? No, I'm just thinking if we should like just try and get a get a PayPal like link put on <laughs> the blogs. Maybe we can we can make. I think this I could happen. do it by myself. It would be better if I were allowed to take my dog. I think. But it's true because dogs can sense uh, ghosts. Spirits, right? yes, yeah. of course they can. It's very scientific. And ghosts hate dogs, right? Oh, but they like cats. Is that what you're getting at, Robert? Well, that's that's an interesting thing because people bring up the you know the fact a lot that that cats do like to hang out in cemeteries. Yes, and a lot of that like. Realistically, it comes down to there are fewer people in a cemetery. People are less likely to be mean to cats, and cats like lounging around on stuff that's been worn by the sun. You know, so there's all that, you know, great concrete, and not to mention the chipmunks. Yes, yeah, you know. right. But, so, are you going to bring up your obligatory reference of Phantasm, the movie that you try to work into many podcasts? Um, have I brought up Phantasm? You before? have. You okay. totally have brought up Phantasm. Before. Okay. Well, Phantasm is one of those great films that delivers the whole spooky uh, graveyard thing. And this is what you think of when you think of graveyards. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard not to think of uh, of the movie Phantasm. But in real life, um, yeah, I, I really like going to Oakland Cemetery uh, here in Atlanta. Which I is do too. Great. We just went. Yeah, yeah. We just went. Uh, yeah, we could go. Weather's great for it right now, and you know, it's a it's, a, it's an historic location here in uh, in town. It's peaceful. You can walk around and. Uh, and take pride in your city, you know? Check out some of the old cats buried there. I mean, old, oh, and by cats, I mean, you know, There's people. not a pet cemetery in Oakland. Oh, that is a good movie. That is one that we should... I love that movie. I forget much... I don't remember much about the movie, but the book was pretty grand. Yeah, you know? you're a Stephen King fan. So what's the scare? Why are we so scared of cemeteries? Well, it's really interesting. Uh, and I, I wrote an article about this uh, back in the day, like a couple of years ago or something. And uh, and yeah, it's it's a lot... When you start really taking it apart it's really fascinating um as a, a biological organism uh we're you know programmed it's in our genes to stay alive sure so if something is, is you know might bring about our death we're going to run from it right or fight it so an obvious reminder of our death like say a cemetery is a place that we're going to avoid well not well not it's not as black and white as that but but when we start thinking about death, it's like we end up, you know, death itself ends up being something that we might try and fight or avoid. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can you can see, you know, people trying to avoid death or, you know, outright defy it, you know, every day. You know, it's in it's in our science. It's in our our, you know, new age medicine. It's in our, you know, our belief systems. You know, um, you know, death cannot be the end. There must be a way that I can that things can keep going. Um, 
and uh, you know we we make a big deal out of it. Sure. We also, um, you know, we distance it from our thoughts too. That's another way that we we deal with death. You just, you know, you try not to think about it, or uh, we. And of course, we also limit our um, intimacy with it. You know. So interesting question here. Do you think that um, as a as a home buyer, what do you think that does to the uh, price of a home if your house is located next to a cemetery? Do you think that automatically brings the price of a house down? Just wondering. I don't know. We should throw that out to the, the listeners. Yeah. Anybody know? Please do tell us. I'm curious about this. Yeah. Cause it seems like for some folks, it would be a, you know, it'd be a plus. Yeah. You know? Kind of like a park, but different. Yeah. You know, it's just <laughs> dead people buried there. Yeah. I guess there could be people, dead people buried in the park too. We just don't know about. Yeah. I'd be more concerned about that. The unmarked graves there right, than the people right, who right. got a nice, uh, you know, let's nice talk a little funeral. bit more about death. Well. <clears throat> Particularly this study from uh, Chicago's Mount Sinai Hospital. This was an interesting one. Oh, yes. This is just a little sidebar here. Um, this is back in the 1960s. Dr. Eric uh, Kast of Chicago's Mount Sinai Hospital, um, he experimented with giving dying patients uh, LSD, which, of course, is a uh, you know, hallucinogen. Um, and uh, he actually, uh, it, this is not something you can get funding for these days, but back then... The, <laughs> it was possible. Yeah, uh, I imagine they flag uh, research with LSD in it. Yeah, but he, he ended up dosing like 80 patients, you know, and uh, 72 reported uh, that they gained like some sort of insight, like, you know, they that they were a part of the universe or that, you know, they felt better about um, the end that was coming to them. And we need to stress they were not giving them, them to it like, here, take LSD and die. They were like, you're going to die soon you know it's it's bound to happen you know in the in the immediate future here's some right. lsd so to change your thinking all, about it these patients were all in like hospice or yeah yeah chronic had were suffering from chronic conditions exactly of some sort. yeah so out of those 80 72 reported insight 58 found it pleasant and uh, 65 wanted to do it again of course that's a heck of a time in your life to find out there's something you want to do more of you know yeah, right. right well, so I was thinking about this when you when you brought this study to my attention, and it was interesting in that I think that uh, taking LSD sh- certainly could alter your perspective on uh, on death. Um, but also, I mean, if you're hanging out at the boundary between life and death, presumably this might be a transcendent experience. I mean, it, this is of course you know highly subjective. This is just me talking about it. Mm-hmm. But if you're hanging out there on this really crazy boundary between life and death. Do you want to obscure it with drugs? Yeah. You know, wouldn't you want to be about, a, yeah. a firsthand witness to it? I mean, similar, I guess you could look at it like we were talking about it before, you know, also with birth, right? Mm-hmm. You know, some women, um, childbirth is painful, you know, and whether you, whether or not you want to take drugs in that scenario, you know, bringing life into the world. I don't know. It's just really interesting. I was yeah, thinking about yeah, it. Yeah. It's, it's, I keep going back and forth on it when I Piece it over in my totally head. understand either way. Just yeah. just thinking about it. Now it's interesting. You mentioned about it, you know, being at this boundary point between life and death. That's another thing that factors into our uh, experience with cemeteries. Obviously, graveyards are for the living. You know, um, I think we can agree, especially in a science podcast, that the dead people don't care. You know, you could, <laughs> you can, you know, it's 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 all about the pe- the people who survive and wanting to have a place where you can remember a loved one that's departed or honor a loved one that's departed. So we, you know, we create these necropolis, uh, you know, uh, environments. Oh, what a great word, necropolis, that is. Yeah, I love necropolis. Um, and, you know, we create these 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 environments, you know, full of marble and stone and silent statues. And it, and it has a very, you know, anytime you go to a, a cemetery, no matter what your your feelings on death and you know the the, the hereafter, um, you know, happen to be, um, you know, it's it's a very somber environment. And we kind of take that feeling of the boundary of life and death 
and we we make a physical space out of it. You know, and then you pour in a whole bunch of you pour in religion, you pour in like folk tales, you you know cultural traditions, cultural traditions, and and horror movies, TV, all of it. You pour all that in, and it just intensifies that feeling. You know, it's um and creates this kind of contested this feeling. There's a contested space between life and death. So, you know, you walk into the midst of all that, you're going to have some uh, interesting feelings going on, even if it isn't outright you know fear or you know creepiness. So we had a childhood a tradition. I don't know if you ever did this, but, um, you know, similar to the thing where you hold your feet up when you're going over railroad tracks. Did you ever do that? I don't know what the reasoning there is. When you were driving by the cemetery? No, no, no. Okay. So there's, there's two separate superstitions at work here. One was uh, if you go over railroad tracks, you're supposed to hold your feet up while you go over the railroad tracks. Okay. Never did that. I, I don't really know what that was. Especially while I'm driving. No, but you're supposed to hold your breath while you drove past a cemetery. And that was really tricky if the cemetery was, was long. And I'm not sure what that was based on either. Pers- well, see, we always held our breath. That? No, we held our breath when we went over bridges. Oh. Yeah. In case you needed, I mean, in I preparation mean, it, it for just, hopping into yeah, the water. It makes just as much sense. Yeah. Uh, but, but curious. no, we never did anything curious, curious with graveyards. Yeah. Um, so some more stuff about just how we view death that I found really interesting. According to ph- uh, philosophy professor Anton Van Nykerk, um, we, oh, right. yeah, we come as a, uh, a culture to, uh, to see dying not as something our bodies eventually do, all right, but something that eventually happens to our bodies. It's kind of, you know, like think of it this way, like your body eventually dies. That, I mean, that's a true statement. But we often end up viewing it instead in terms of like death happens to us. Death is something that is like an exterior force is enacted upon us. And you see that in religion and the mythology and folk tales and, and all in and, and just art. You know, you'll see death depicted as what? Grim Reaper. Right. Which we have a cool uh, article on. We do. Yeah. Bill Harris wrote it. Yeah. That's a, that's a good one. You know what came out that was so interesting? There's a whole uh, Mexican cult. Um, that's like kind of an offshoot of Grim Reaper stuff. It's so interesting. I, the name is eluding me right something now. Something del Morta, Morta. Yeah, yeah yes, 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 yes. Spanish. Yes, okay. yes. Oh, cool. Yeah. Anyway, good article. Um, but yeah, so you, you have Grim Reaper, you have the Angel of Death, and all this, right? Um, but we don't really, uh, we don't really have that. Um, but we, well, we still have that today. But increasingly, um, as a culture, we don't really think about the Grim Reaper or the Archangel of Death coming to us as a real thing. Okay? So instead, um, according to uh, sociologist Zygmunt Bauman, we uh, practice something called, quote, the deconstruction of mortality. And, and in this that, is deep. This yeah, is really yeah. deep for a podcast. Let's, let's roll it. What, yeah. what well, he says have to that say? we break down death into smaller pieces that we can digest easily. So instead of like thinking about just going like, oh my goodness, the yawning, um, you know, weight of the tomb and the, you know, the, the infinite, uh, nothingness or beyond death or the, the infinite possibilities beyond death, instead of getting torn down with all that, we think about the biological functions of death. We think about diseases and, and mental problems, right? Muscles wasting away. Yeah. And you can, you know, you, you break it dying. down. Yeah. And you can, then you can, you can sort of like assign those tasks off. You know, it's like, Oh, well, doctors here, take care of this. So, you know, psychiatrist, psychologist, you know, take care of this. And then when the act actually occurs again, in, you know, increasingly, especially in like Western, um, you know, society, you know, it's like people don't, we have people to, to touch the, the dead bodies for us, to prepare them, to, you know, there's a whole industry, um, you know, that takes care of that for us and removes us, you know, from intimacy with death and the deceased. 
Right. And so cemeteries being such a visible sign of our own demise is, is problematic for us. That's what you're saying, right? Yeah, yeah. That's that's what it comes down to a lot of people. So you do have people who like really get you know, have an aversion to it, you know, like really would rather not drive past a cemetery or well, also think about the memories uh, yeah. involved in a cemetery. You know, what if you saw I mean, if you had to bury your mother, your father, family member, you know, a friend or anything like that. I mean, they can be associated with some pretty powerful memories, sad memories. Yeah. So there you have it. That's uh, basically our cultural fears uh, about uh, cemeteries in a nutshell. In a nutshell, indeed. Yeah. A morbid nutshell. Yeah. yeah. So whether or not you like cemeteries, let's talk about the science of cemeteries or some of the science going on at cemeteries. Yeah. This but, is pretty cool. I like this study. Yeah. This is a, and this is a, a good thing to think of if you're, you know, if you're the type of person who goes to a cemetery and you don't feel anything whatsoever, then this is perfect because, uh, yeah. Yeah. Just, do some science there. Yeah. So what kind of science is going on? Well, it, it all breaks down to this. Uh, it breaks down. That's kind of funny considering what we're about to talk about. Nice, um, nice. You know, we, we were talking about, okay, you have a mortal body. You know, it's going to decay and die and decay and all that. So you put a stone marker because the stone is going to last forever, right? Wrong. That's the thought. Yeah. Because um, you have like a marble slab. Uh, it may, It's going to last longer than a human lifetime, you know, but it's still going to decay. We've all seen, uh, you know, cemetery, you know, cemetery upkeep is, a you know, a constant effort because you have tombstones that are falling over. They're crumbling. Mm-hmm. They're flaking. And what's the reason for that? Acid rain. Well, yeah, or just rain in general, yeah. <laughs> no, weathering, the weathering, yeah, weathering. process, yeah. what happens to us all. Well, there's a certain acidity to rain, as it is. Um, I think the way it breaks down, rainwater is about a 5.6 on the pH scale. And it put well, that, sure, that depends on area, though, and yeah, what's it, going yeah. on. This is, this is roughly. but um, And to put that in context, a pH of zero is essentially battery acid. And so, the, so each step up from zero is less acidic. Okay, so rainwater, 5.6. Cup of coffee is 5. Um, Yum, coffee. Yeah. Stomach acid is like a 2. That's pretty strong. Acid rain is more like a 4. So acid rain is like one whole number, uh, you know, or over one whole number. Uh, right, so acid rain is uh, a relatively weak acid on the whole Yeah, but, but of course the thing is you have those, the tombstone is out there in the open since the, the day that it's, you know, been planted, or uh, probably a little before. And uh, and it's constantly getting hit with this stuff. Right. So you looked up a pretty cool article um, that ran in Science World. And um, there's an the author was talking about how cemeteries wind up being this really great uh, unintentional geological experiment in which we can measure the effects of acid rain um, in a particular area. Yeah, I think specifically they mentioned the Graveyard Project. And they've been around. They've the looked, Gravestone oh, Project. Oh, the Gravestone Project, yes. Uh, and they've uh, they've gone around to just like hundreds and you know h- hundreds of uh, of cemeteries and looked at thousands of tombstones, and um, and one of the things they look for is uh, when you have uh, letters, you know, um, John Smith lies here. Yeah, exactly. Sure. Uh, you know, when those are indented in the tombstone, there's often lead in there too. The lead uh, doesn't break down under uh, you know all the the rain and the the weathering, so that stays in place. So they can use that. As, as a frame a of reference, yeah, as a gauge to how how much of the marble uh, and stone has, has, been has been eaten away by the rain, yeah. That's and and cool. of course, it's a tombstone, so it has a, a date on it right there. So that that also helps. Yeah, it's handy you know. for measurements. Yeah, yeah. I, I, like you said, I think they're um, they've gotten like hundreds of measurements from different cemeteries, so it's pretty neat. Yeah, they can they can study like how 
the local weathering conditions work, you know, and, and then, you know, compare them to what they might have seemed to be in the past. And then, you know, analyze, uh, use that to analyze how, how the atmosphere has changed in the area. Right. And they can also compose a worldwide weathering map to right. see what's going yeah. on, different patterns of, uh, acid rain in different areas. Yeah. So they can figure neat. out what climate change is doing, figure out what pollution is doing. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Let's talk a little bit about the high tech graves going on. This fascinated me. Yeah. Yeah. We've talked a lot about old crumbly stuff and now we're talking about sort of new, f- Fangled stuff. But, I mean, we've always kind of been fascinated with um, graveyard technology. I mean, back in the day, we would build mazes and pyramids to confuse grave robbers. Mm-hmm. Um, you even mentioned that there were bells to ring from your casket so that... Um, oh, yeah. This is pretty well, cool. because they had that, uh, there was always that fear that you're going to be buried alive. So you needed a line out, right? And you couldn't just have a cell phone on you. Right, right. Like that movie that's out now. But... In the old days, you would have a, like a string and you would, you know, pull hey, the string. hey guys, don't, don't bury me yet. Yeah. I'm just going to ring this bell in case you haven't heard me screaming. Yeah. So that, that's graveyard technology right there in action. And they also had the locks, right? The old oh, graves. yeah. Yeah. Because they, um, especially in the Victorian era, you had all the, uh, the corpse, um, body snatching going on. You know, you needed, uh, corpses, um, and cadavers for, for surgical studies and science, but, uh, that was the only way to get them. You had to hire some drunk guy to go out to the cemetery and bust one open for you. But now we have GPS going on in our graves. Yeah, this is this is pretty cool. Um, I've re- read about this in a number of places. There was a cool uh, article on Wired, um, and it, the, the idea is like uh, you know, increasingly green burial is a thing. I think we've talked about this. We have talked yeah. about it a little bit. But green burial essentially just means that there's a hole being dug in the ground. Um, I think your uh, the body is placed in a shroud of mm-hmm. some sort. Yeah, there's no like embalming the body with a bunch of chemicals to make it last a little longer. There's no like, you know, giant metal casket, you know, situation. Is there even an exterior barrier? I thought it, I, I literally thought it was just the body that was going in. I think, I think a lot of it is shrouds. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely no giant metal casket. That's for sure. Right. So the problem with this, if you can call it a problem, is that, um, it's, it's pretty inconspicuous. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could certainly place a headstone there, but a lot of people are even moving away from, uh, putting a headstone. Yeah, because uh, the idea being you want the body to return to nature. And, you know, um, a graveyard is often a very unnatural environment. Though I think it's the, uh, there's like a really good um, Unitarian cemetery, I think, in Savannah. Have you seen that? They let, they let everything like grow up. It's still a graveyard. There's still tombstones, but they let the nature kind of take over. It's pretty, pretty swank. Well, so the tricky thing here is that's great, you know, about, being one with nature and all that, but it can be hard for a family member, say, to locate a body of a, of a loved one. Right. And again, graves, uh, burial, all that, it's about the survivors. So how do you, you extend the olive branch to them? Right. So you, you send a little tag down with them when you bury them so that you can make sure that you can locate the body in the future. Yeah, everything else breaks down and you'll have this one little like uh, radio dealie down there sending off the signal to tell you where, uh, you know, Uncle Greg, uh, you know, became one with nature. Right. And then you would use a little device to find it. But it, but it, as cool as that is, I can't help but think, you know, our, our geotagging, uh, is so advanced now. And, uh, you know, this technology is everywhere. Like what's stopping uh, someone now from just going out, you know, they have the natural barrier and just mark the exact location and then just, you know, find it with, uh, you know, that's true with a GPS device. That's true. You make a good point there, Lammer. <laughs> and what are the Japanese doing? Well, yeah, the Japanese are in a situation where they have far less room to bury people. I think about this a lot with uh, New Orleans, too. 
Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. There's not not a lot of places there too, unless you want them rising back up, right? Yeah. Well, um, and and in Japan, it's also big just to have a place for like cremated ashes to go. But it but they also have a you know a long standing tradition of honoring you know the dead. Being you want to be able to visit your your you know your your dead father grandfather's grave and you know and honor them when you want. Sure, it's a big deal. And I, it's I, very expensive though. If you if you're trying to keep that amount, you know, that little space on a shelf or that uh, you know, that little plot somewhere going, you know, all the time, it's it's really pricey and people sink some serious dough into it. So, the Japanese, always very efficient when it comes to space, have created these high-rise columbariums. Yeah, and that's uh It's kind of like a giant death vending machine essentially. It is. It is. Yeah, in Japanese Buddhism, the uh, the columbarium is called a nokotsudo, I believe. Okay. And uh, yeah, and it is this version of it is like a giant vending machine with the like robotic retrieval. Of so, the loved one's ashes. Yeah. So you go to see Uncle Greg, right? Uncle Greg. Do is, you have an Uncle Greg, by the way? No. I hope not, because <laughs> poor Uncle Greg. He's okay. Yeah. <laughs> so so Uncle Greg is actually like up on a like a shelf in like the you know the third floor of this big. Um, you know, necropolis condo deal, you know? So, um, so you go into a little, um, little altar area. Or, yeah. And you then fish out a card. You fish out a card, swipe it. And, uh, that tells the machine where Uncle Greg is stored. So then the uh, robotic retrieval system grabs Uncle Greg, zips him down there. Then the little doors open and voila, there's Uncle Greg right there for you. In all honor. of his glory. Yeah. That's pretty cool. It's pretty ingenious. Yeah. It's a high tech solution to, uh, you know, a, a very, real problem. But there's uh, one final thing we're going to cover that you can do with your ashes. Which uh, I'm not surprised that you brought up because you are kind of a music buff. I, I do like music. I'm not as into, like, I'm, I have friends that are DJs and they're super into vinyl. You know, I, a friend of mine has a basement just full of Vinyl? Records. So does death have something to do with vinyl? Yes, uh, it does. And there's actually a company in the UK called And Vinyly. It's like <laughs> so And great. Finally and Vinyl, you know. And, uh, and what they'll do is pretty amazing. Uh, they will, um, they will take your ashes and they will press them into a vinyl record. I'm curious about the whole integration process and how that works. Well, apparently they, uh, they have to spread the, the ashes have to be sprinkled onto the raw piece of vinyl, which uh, in the industry is known as like a biscuit or a puck. And then they press it into the plates. Okay. So it's, you know, it's, it's in there just pressed, you know, into it. So it's not just the ashes being made into a record. And uh and it's a you can actually play this uh you know on a record player. They say that each one will be uh like a twenty four minute track and uh for about two thousand pounds, you know, you can get artwork and everything and up to thirty discs with your ashes inside them. Okay, so here's the thing. <laughs> what song? Oh yeah, I this is a curious question. I actually um, when I first found the story I threw it out on Twitter and asked a few people and uh, I also threw it to um DJ Chiba in the UK, who's mm-hmm. a, a really cool DJ. That interviewed, interviewed him for the yeah. blogs a while back. Interviewed right? him for the blogs, and uh, he said that he would go with uh, the end by the Doors. Oh, so that was really so. It's that's a that's a tough one to top. I would probably personally go with something really beautiful and serene off of uh, one of uh, one of the Boards of Canada albums. But that's just because I, I you know I I like the serenity of the sound, you know. But I think also people would often do like some the ideas that you would do like a personal message on these. I see. But I would rather do the music. All I can well, so I've thought about my death mix. Okay. <laughs> have you not? Have you ever 
Have you done this exercise? You know, people like to imagine who's going to be at their funeral or service or what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I've thought about what music I want to play at my funeral. I haven't put together an actual set list. <laughs> I've contemplated some songs that I want on my set list. And there's some by Peter Gabriel, but I cannot think of the, the song by Peter Gabriel. The one that definitely comes to mind is Digging in the Dirt. But Oh, that's a good one. Um, oh, wait. I know a lot of Gabriel tunes. Or maybe you're thinking of... Uh... Mercy Street, that's a good one. Oh, I love Mercy Street. Yeah. yeah, Peter Gabriel, a fine, fine man. Especially, perhaps, do you have on your uh, your final album? Yeah, I would probably just go with the Boards of Canada album. Or, if I die before DJ Chiba, he can come and DJ my, my funeral. <laughs> so I think that's all we have for Death in Cemeteries. I'm sure we've cheered you up immensely today. But, you know, we got to get you guys in the mood for Halloween. What are you, what are you peering out there, Robert? You got some listener uh, we, mail? We got some really cool listener mail from uh, Jeremy. And uh, and he sent us a lot of stuff, and I, I don't have time to go over a lot of it um, here. But he sent us like a really cool um, "How Dangerous a Zombie" um, uh, poster to kind of inform you. He was uh, responding to our uh, "Science versus Monsters" podcast, which was the uh, the other Halloween one we did. Uh, well, it would have been two back from from now, along with the Mad Scientist one. Right, right. And uh, and so he shared some thoughts on monsters and all. But here I'll share share something he said about vampires. Uh, vampires in the quote where the mathematician talked about turning the population into vampires and dying out in three years. Well, I'm a, a vampire buff. Love movies and lore. I watch about every movie that comes out just to see the director-writer's take on vampires. I even watch the horrible Twilight movies because of this. In everything that I've yeah, read, yeah, sure, Jeremy, that's why you watched them. <laughs> it was that dude's hair. That's why I watched it. Um, <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, anyway, that that was me, not him. Uh, he says. Um, uh, vampires do not change someone just by biting them. There is always more work involved. The reason being is that vampirism is not a disease, unlike lycanthropy, werewolves, shapeshifters. I can see the point that the mathematician is trying to make, but his point only would, would work with a very limited scope, if any, uh, of the vampire legends. I know you guys mentioned this after the fact, but I wanted to reiterate this. Um, so that's cool. He's, uh, you know, He's standing up for the vampire uh, myths and, uh, you know, pointing out that that study indeed um, sort of... Sort of tongue-in-cheek, but... Yeah, but they still picked and chose exactly what version of the uh, the mythos they were going to go with for that study, indeed. which isn't very scientific. Not very scientific. So if you guys want to send us your thoughts on monsters, science, or spooky stuff, um, send us an email at sciencestuff at howstuffworks.com. Yep, and visit us, visit us on Twitter where we are lab stuff, or uh, on Facebook, where we are stuff from the science lab. Thanks for listening, guys. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more HowStuffWorks? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage.